Hello, it's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back for another episode of the History of Comics podcast, this time with the life of Milton Kniff, the Rembrandt of the comic strip. The comic strip was the precursor of comic books in many ways, not just in that they originally made up the first comics when the strips were collected in the books, but also by the comic strip artists who were inspired by them. In my research to study many of the great artists of comics, from Jack Kirby to Carmen Infantino, one comic strip artist consistently came up as inspiration, and that was Milton Kniff. From his humble beginnings in Ohio, he would rise to be one of the finest comic strip artists in the medium to ever be ever produced, along with creating some of the best adventure stories ever to grace the newspaper. It is no wonder he served as such an inspiration. Milton Kniff was born in Hillsboro, Ohio on February 28, 1907, the son of a newspaper printer. He attended his first seven years of grade school there before his family moved to Dayton. It was there while attending Silver, Stilver's uh, High School, now Stilver's School of Arts, that he met Esther Bunny Parsons, who would later become his wife of 50 years. Caniff would also work on the high school yearbook and paper, as well as being a member of the Glee Club and literary group, the Jeffersonians. In addition, he started to develop his lifelong passion for cartooning, providing strips for the local newspapers. A major part of Caniff's uh, young life was the Boy Scouts of America. He was a member of Boy Scout Troop No. 2 in Hillsboro and No. 16 in Dayton. Caniff would eventually become an Eagle Scout and earn the Distinguished Eagle Scout Award and later credit the Scouts with helping develop his observation and storytelling skills. The Scout page in the Sunday edition of the Dayton Journal also served as being a regular outlet for his art, along with leading to a part-time job with the paper itself. Caniff would remain loyal to the Boy Scouts for his, the rest of his life, later serving on their public relations committee in 1944. He would, prov- later, he would provide chalk shots to their Golden Jubilee with a drawing of Steve Canyon, along with providing numerous drawings and designs for the Boy Scouts throughout the years. Milton Caniff would credit his mentor, Billy Ireland, the famed Ohio cartoonist, with helping him join in the profession, as for a short period during his young life, Caniff thought about becoming an actor. Ireland advised him against it, telling Caniff, Stick to your ink pods, kid. Actors don't eat regularly. Caniff would later go to the Ohio State University, OSU, where he pledged to join the Sigma Chi fraternity. At college, he produced uh, program covers for the football team, along with features for the college human paper, The Sundial. Caniff would later be a made art editor of the yearbook staff and the residential artist. In 1930, Milton Caniff graduated and married Bunny. And he, but he would remain a longtime supporter of his university and in 1944 served on the Ohio State alumni staff, providing drawings and designs for the magazine of Signa Chi and the Norman Shield, the fraternity's pledge ship reference manual. He even paid tribute to them in a 1937 strip of Terry and the Pirates, where it is revealed that the character of Pat Ryan is a member of Signa Chi, or a SIG. And most significantly, in 1977, Caniff donated his personal papers, original art, and other effects to OSU for the creation of the Cartoon and Museum, Museum and Cartoon Research Library. In September of 2009, it was relaying the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library Museum after the famed cartoon Ohio artist and uh, Milton Caniff's former mentor, and to date has accrued 450,000 cartoons, 36,000 books, 51,000 serial titles, and 3,000 feet of manuscript materials, along with 2.5 million comic strip clippings and tear sheets, all for the preservation and study of the art of cartooning. While still at Ohio State University, Milton Caniff needed a part-time job to cover his living expenses, so he began work at the Columbus Dispatch on nights and weekends. This was due to a recommendation of Billy Ireland, who was at the time the paper star cartoonist. 
Kaya started off doing letters, captions, and ruling borders before moving on to portraits and layout designs for the Sunday Edition Dispatch. There, Kenneth would uh, work under city editor Gus Conner and his boss, managing editor Harry Henry Riker. It was Riker who gave Kenneth a piece of advice that he would quote for decades afterwards. Always draw for the old man who pays for the paper, not for the kids. After graduating Ohio State University along with a new wife to support, Kenneth would uh, move to full-time at the Columbus Dispatch for $40 a week. Soon he's producing features like Escape from the Pen, Life is Like That, and the Platoonlets, while also doing renderings for news stories, which would later be replaced by uh, photography and uh, in addition to his work in the sales and promotions department. Unfortunately, despite these successes, Milton Kenneth would be laid off from the dispatch during the Great Depression. This would end up being fortuitous, though, as Milton Kenneth was, about, was already dreaming of working in a larger market, and soon he would get a chance to do just that. Thankfully, Milton Kenneth received a job offer from the Associated Press in New York City. However, he didn't want to leave out of first loyalty to his good friend, Noel Bud Douglas Sickles, who was also his co-worker at the Columbus Dispatch, and was a fan of Kenneth's work before anyone else even knew who he was. By 1931, the two men had even formed an advertising agency, but Sickles would encourage Kenneth to go to New York and seek further success. Upon arriving in Manhattan in 1933, Kenneth immediately took a liking to the city and at the AP enjoyed the the work uh, given to him. It was at the AP bullpen that Kenneth met Alfred Kauplan, then the youngest cartoonist in the United States who was working on Mr. Gilfeather. However, Kaplan would soon leave the AP that September, with Kenneth set to take over Mr. Gilford of the Strip. Kaplan would go on to create Little Abner on August 13, 1934, one of the greatest comic strips of all time, with him changing his name to Al Cap. As for Milton Kenneth, he would soon blaze his own destiny in the comic strip medium. Showing his continued loyalty to Noel Doug Sickles, Milton Kenneth managed to get, him a, get the AP to hire him as a general assignment artist. Kenneth would also produce the strip Puffy the Pig, a one-panel uh, children's series that told a story accompanied by a four-line poem. However, Kenneth did not enjoy replacing Kaplan and Mr. Gilfeather, so he insisted on creating a new panel a day strip, The Gay 30s, a homage to his uh, mentor Billy Ireland's The Passing Show, along with a more in the line with Kenneth's own sensibilities. Features editor Wilson Hicks approved this new strip to replace Mr. Gilfeather. That same year, Milton Kenneth was hired by his friend Bill Dwyer to help ghostwrite the first year and a half of Dumb Dora, a strip Dwyer was taking over from Chick Young. Dumb Dora starred a young woman or a flapper who came off as stupid but always managed to convince others to do what she wanted. Originally launching in 1924 in a King's Feature Syndicate, it would continue to 1936, gaining enough popularity in pop culture that the character's name, Dumb Dora, would be used as a term to describe ditzy females, appearing in Vaudeville George, and George Burns' show with his wife, Gracie Allen, and even the game show, The Match Game. Now, with two strips under his name, Kenneth was looking for his next step to move up the AP food chain in mid-1933 when he approached Hicks about a new strip about a boy whose imaginations were so vivid he would put himself in the stories he read, from Robinson Crusoe to Aladdin. Hicks approved the idea, which became Dickie Dare and debuted on July 31st. However, by its fifth month in 1934, the strip would change to real-life adventures over imaginary ones, probably inspired by the popularity of such strips like Tarzan and Secret Agent X-9 at the time. As Dickie Dare, his dog Wags, and Dynamite Dan Flynn went on around-the-world adventures all aboard the steamship Ursula, which also held a number of gunrunners. 
To add a bit of sex appeal, a perky brunette by the name of Kim Sheridan was introduced for some romantic tension with Dan Flynn. This would be Milton Cannon's first created strip of his own, and in many ways a prototype for Terry and the Pirates, specifically in starring a boy adventurer with an adult mentor. He would continue to, with the strip until December 1st, 1934, when it was handed off to Colton Waugh. Dickie Dare would ultimately end on October 12, 1957. As for Caniff, he would move on to even greater things. During this time, Milton Cannon's friend Noel Sickles ghosted on the adventure strip Scorchy Smith, replacing artist John Terry, who, who after a bout with tuberculosis has passed away, leaving Sickles as the permanent artist. This worked out pretty well as Sickles and Caniff were able to pass ideas back and forth to one another while working on their prospective strips. It helped that Caniff was left-handed while Sickles was, was right, so that the two artists were able to draw, place their drawing boards head-to-head and carry on conversations while they worked. While Sickles would only do Scorchy Smith for three years before moving on to commercial illustration, his techniques greatly influenced Caniff, as he adapted his own work emphasizing storytelling and snappy dialogue. Soon, Caniff was ready to make his jump to his next strip, arguably one of the greatest ever. The origin of Terry and the Pirates came about when Joe Patterson, the impresario of the Chicago Tribune New York News Syndicate, approached Milton Caniff about an adventure strip set in the Orient. According to legend, much of it from an interview in the January 13, 1947 edition of Time magazine, Patterson asked if Caniff ever thought about doing an adventure strip in the Orient where it was said it could still be had, probably with a beautiful lady pirate to boot. While it is unknown how much of this story was fabricated by Patterson, Caniff was no doubt intrigued by an offer from the news syndicate, especially with revenue sharing from this strip to sweeten the pot if he left the AP for, for this. On that, Milton Caniff would create Terry and the Pirates, with the daily launching on October 22, 1934, while its first Sunday color strip on December 9th, ultimately merging into a continuous seven-day-a-week strip beginning in August 6, 26, 1936. All this happened one week after Caniff signed his contract with the new syndicate, and despite the new series' commitment, Caniff continued to work on Dickie Dare at the AP until December 1, 1934. The story began with a wide-eyed American boy, Terry Lee, arriving in then-contemporary China with his friend, two-fisted journalist Pat Ryan. Seeking a lost gold mine, they meet the George Webster Connie Confucius, an interpreter and local guide. Throughout their adventures in the strip, Lee and Ryan met an ever-larger supporting cast, including Big Stoop, Cheesy Blaze, and Captain Judas. They naturally encountered numerous uh, villains as well, including the titular pirates, often led by the villainous Dragon Lady, the femme fatale of the series who carried a torch for Pat Ryan, but due to being a criminal, they could never really get together. While at the beginning, Terry and the Pirates would strongly resemble Dickie Dare, as both starred boy adventures with their adult mentors, with Terry and the Pirates, Caniff invested himself fully into every aspect of the strip. He would advance the use of color in the Sunday comic strips editions, while also exploring adult themes of romance and sex. Soon it wasn't just about Terry, as the new heroes like April Kane and Flip Cochran joined in while the pirates expanded from the popular Dragon Larry to Captain Blaze and Baron de Plexus. Kenneth would butt heads with the depiction of the Japanese Empire in this trip in the late 1930s, whom at the time were invading China, which Kenneth believed was how they should be depicted. Patterson, his editor, believed the unpleasantness of war didn't belong in a comic strip, but Caniff disagreed and continued to use the term invader and represent the Japanese Empire, something they would naturally agree with during World War II when the Japanese Empire became the enemy of the United States as well. Caniff would produce Terry and the Pirates for an epic 12-year run, and its impact on 
or his work cannot be underestimated. Kev would become a celebrity artist from it, appearing in newspapers, radio shows, and major magazines, while the characters were so popular they appeared in Harper's Bazaar magazine dressed in Hope Couture's style. Naturally, a radio show, a serial film series, and even a movie were adapted from the strip. Tearing the Pirates was one of the most popular strips of its day, with Kenneth one of the most media's most esteemed artists, not just with the general public, but with also many of his artistic peers and aspiring ones, with notable legends like Jack Kirby and Joe Kubert expressing admiration for Kenneth's work. Terry and the Pirates even influenced many of the great comic stories that followed, notably the death of Gwen Stacy in Amazing Spider-Man, which John Romita Sears cited the death of Raven Sherman in the October 1941 strip as a chief influence. Popular TV shows like Johnny Quest and I Spy were also inspired by the strip as well. With Terry and the Pirates, Milton Caniff would be elevated to the A-list of construct artists, but world events would only send them even higher. During World War II, Milton Caniff sought to enlist in the U.S. military, but was declared 4F due to chronic uh, bulbitis, which could lead to blood clots and narcolepsy, which caused him to fall asleep during routine activities. Still wishing to serve his country in some way during this time of war, Caniff used Terry and the Pirates to promote the U.S. war effort. Terry Lee would be depicted as having grown into a young man, becoming a combat pilot in the U.S. Army Air Corps, while also reteaming with Pat Ryan, who had returned to the U.S. military as a Navy officer. Together, together the two would serve in the Pacific Theater, naturally close to their original adventures, and after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Kenneth's publishers no longer were hesitant in depicting the Japanese Empire as villains. Even the Dragon Lady joined forces with Lee and Ryan against the Japanese forces, most to protect her criminal empire. Naturally, after the war, she returned to her villainous ways. Terry also gained a new mentor and flying instructor, Colonel Flip Cochran, based on the real-life Colonel Philip Flip Cochran of the 1st Air Commando Group. A highlight of Cochran came in October 17, 1943 strip, when he gave Terry a speech about being a fighter pilot that was so popular... U.S. Representative Carl Henshaw of California read it on the floor of the House of Representatives, thus ensuring it will be entered into the congressional record. Caniff would use his numerous military contracts to ensure accurate depictions of the military, which received praise from many servicemen overseas and their loved ones back home. Plus, working with the War Department, he also produced some weekly risque Terry and the Pirate strips starring Burma and the other female characters in Terry for the armed forces overseas especially for many of the men serving who missed their wives and girlfriends. This was published in the Stars and Stripes magazines, the uh, Daily American newspaper. However, when a stateside paper complained about paying for the real Daring the Pirates, Milton Kaft adapted the weekly strip to Mail Call, starring Miss Lace for free to U.S. forces serving overseas to read. It was one of the many fond memories servicemen enjoyed during World War II, particularly the beauty of the dark-haired uh, Miss Lace, who was inspired by the British tabloid strip Jane and would last in 1946. Kenneth also produced numerous designs, insignias for servicemen, handbooks for civil defense and military hospitals, along with personally touring to visit wounded veterans, giving chalk talks of uplifter spirits. Through this, Kenneth would develop a right-wing political view, which would be to his detriment decades later in his career, though it also motivated him to continue to provide free sketches of Miss Lace and other, others to the military veterans forever after. Another consequence of World War II is that many of the construct artists like Milton Kenneth, Rude Goldberg, and Ham Fisher would tour together in the USO to entertain the troops. Enjoying this camaraderie so much, in 1946, they formed the National Cartoonist Society, NCS, the premier club of comic strip artists. With it, they established the Billy DeBeck Award for Cartoonist of the Year, named after the legendary cartoonist and creator Barney Google. 
It was first awarded in 1946 to Milton Caniff, and would later be renamed the Rubin Award in 1954 after Rube Goldberg, another legendary cartoonist and the NCS's first president. Caniff would succeed Goldberg as the NCS's second president, serving from 1948 to 1949. To date, the National Cartoonist Society remains the premier organization for comic strip artists, with the Rubin Award to such esteemed members like Bill Watterson, Walt Kelly, Gary Larson, and once again, Milton Caniff, who received it in 1971 for his work on Steve Canyon. In 1981, Milton Kenneth was named to the National Cartoon Society's Hall of Fame, originally the Gold Key Award. As a further honor, the Milton Kenneth Lifetime Achievement Award was established in his honor in 1994, which has notable honorees being Will Eisner, Jack Davis, and Frank Frazetta. Outside of serving the armed services, Milton Kenneth's charity work also expanded to the 4-H Club and Coenus Club, for which he produced art pieces for, along with creating mascots for Goodwill Industries and the Palm Springs Press Club. He was also a longtime supporter of the Aviation Hall of Fame, with his portrait of Captain Jimmy Doolittle of the famed Doolittle Raid selling well into the 21st century. Despite the success of Terry and the Pilots, Brock Mellon Kenneth, he was looking to expand his horizons and was also a bit worried about uh, his uh, attachment to the strip, as even though he received revenue sharing, he didn't actually own it. Soon he would be able to do just that. In 1944, Milton Kenneth was approached by Marshall Field of Field Enterprises about producing a new strip, this time with Kenneth having an ownership stake in it. According to Kenneth, since King Features would be subcontracted to market and distribute his new strip, he met with the syndicate's owner, the legendary William Randolph Hearst, who during negotiations called him One Tough SOB. This is disputed by others, but it does make for a good story. However, when word did leak that Kenneth was planning to leave tearing the pirates in 1946 when his contract was up, he became persona non grata at the new syndicate. Despite this reaction by his current bosses, Kenneth was still intrigued by the offer and began working on this new strip, at least in his head. As any new material he actually produced would be owned by the new syndicate until his contract ended. Once it expired, Kenneth did indeed leave Terry and the Pirates in the new syndicate, who would, who would have uh, George Wonder replace him on the strip. To Wonder's credit, he kept Terry and the Pirates running to 1973 when it was finally cancelled. Miller Kenneth went on to produce Steve Canyon, first preparing on Jan- January 13, 1947, 168 pa- newspapers, and immediately praised an example of classic comic book storytelling. Mills Canis move was so huge he appeared on the cover of Time in 1947 with his his new character and later on Newsweek in 1950. Steve Canyon starred Stevenson R. Canyon, an independent aviator who traveled the globe and encountering numerous exciting adventures along the way. Soon this trip was filled with diverse supporting cast from Fida Fida to Madame Lynx, whose look was based on the femme Patel spy played by Anona Massey in the 1949 Marx Brothers film Love Happy. Kenneth was so impressed by her look, he personally hired Massey to model for the character. Soon, she would not be the only character based on a celebrity, as uh, Pipper the Piper was based on John F. Kennedy, Ms. Mazou on Marilyn Monroe, and Charles, Charlie Vanilla on Kenneth's longtime friend Charles Rushorn, a former war photographer and U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who served as a technical advisor in the five James Bond films, even appearing in Thunderball and credited as an Air Force officer. Vanilla's love of ice cream, he always appeared in Steve Kenny with an ice cream cone in his hand, was also a tribute to Russ Hone's own love of the dessert. One advantage uh, Canyon had over Terry was that it allowed Kenneth to travel the world as, he, as opposed to being stuck in China, along with having an older character with a more layered past, one that actually paralleled Kenneth's own. 
Specifically, Cannon was also from Ohio, having attended Ohio State University and a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity, thus he was a Sig like Caniff. Unlike Caniff, the fictional Canyon actually served in World War II and returned to uniform in 1950 during the Korean War, as the stories that were started to reflect more contemporary time. Ultimately, Steve Canyon would become a cold warrior for the American way, and Caniff would become reacquainted with many of his military contacts from Terry and the Pirates, helping to increase the authenticity of the strip. At his peak, Steve Canyon would appear in more papers than Terry and the Pirates ever was and received a 34-episode 1958 television series on ABC with Dean Fredericks in the title role, which Caniff, with the Caniff estate later restored. During the 1950s, a series of novels on Steve Canyon were also written by Caniff, who provided the illustrations as well. To help with all this, Caniff hired Dick Rockwell, nephew of the legendary illustrator Norman Rockwell, as his assistant, serving as a ghost penciler for the background characters, a common practice for most comic artists to maintain the daily grind of producing a strip. Rockwell stayed with Steve Canyon to its end, and pro- even producing a few strips following Caniff's death to wrap up the series. During the 1960s, Steve Cannon and Milton Cannon frequently took the side of the United States in the Vietnam conflict, which, which increasingly became unpopular with the American public. As a result, the strip's readership shrunk and never recovered, though remained popular to its end. Plus, Milton Cannon would receive the Cartoonist of the Year Award, now known as the Rubin Award, named of Rube Goldberg, from the National Cartoon Society in 1971 for his work on Steve Cannon, and later the Inkpot Award in 1974. The strip will eventually end on June 5, 1988 with Dick Rockwell, his longtime assistant, finishing it due to his death. The last Saturday strip of Steve Canyon will be a tribute to his creator, with the final strip on June 5th featuring a memorial by fellow cartoonist Bill Malden, along with 78 signatures from friends, peers, and admirers. In 1977, Milton Caniff would work with his old friend Noel Sickles on a Bruce Lee strip under the pseudonym Paul Offer, and even in- including an updated version of the Dragon Lady for Terry and the Pirates called the Black Swan. However, nothing came of it, and it did, though it did give the two men and old friends who were now in their 70s one last thing to work on together. Another high honor Milton Caniff received in his last years was being made an honorary member of the 8th Air Force Historical Society in recognition of his mail call strip. Milton Caniff died on April 3, 1988, at the age of 81. Despite having never served in the U.S. military, he was given full military honors as burial. An unofficial service was given after this, with attendees including fellow comic book legends Alex Toff and Will Eisner. He left behind a legacy like no other, mentoring fellow legendary artists like Carmen Infantino, Jack Kent, and Chick Stone, along with influencing countless others from Jack Kirby, Bob Kane, and John Romita Sr., to date, he is held alongside Alex Raymond and Hal Foster as some of the greatest comic strip artists ever, along with setting the standard for the adventure genre. And that is a rambling and too brief biography of Milton Caniff, one of the greatest comic strip artists of all time. While he never worked in comic books directly, his work on Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon set a standard for art and storytelling that influenced the media never after. All comic book fans should be grateful ever since. I would like to thank the chief source for this episode, Caniff, a visual biography edited by Dean Mullaney, a fantastic coffee table-sized book featuring not only a biography of the comic strip legend, but fantastic reprints of his art and comic strips. A must-read for any comics fan.
more fun than a super kick party. It's the wrestling podcast from the host, who is the hammer swinging, burrito eating, well you know the rest, of Thunder Talk, Sexy Thor. It's the ring of thunder found in the Thunderverse and among the great podcasts of the ESO Network. Now it is June 9th, 2022. Time for your favorite comic book of the week. Dark Knights of Steel, number 7, by Tom Taylor and Nathan Gooden, that finds uh, Bruce Wayne uh, discovering some new allies in, in his uh, fight with the House of L and the House of Storms, along with some new enemies, too. Tom Taylor once again finds a great job mixing in the classic DC characters in his medieval fantasy setting, this time with the Teen Titans showing up in a very fun and imaginative way. And Nathan Gooden does a great job with his artwork, especially showing off, showing off as well. Let's just say Beast Boy does an awesome trick with his powers. All in all, this has been, this has been just a great uh, black label book and one of the better uh, limited series that come out from DC in recent years. And yeah, the best way to call it is, is DC meets Game of Thrones in the best kind of way. So yeah, you're looking for something a little different uh, from DC, definitely check out the Dark Knight Steel. And also, I want to go ahead and throw out that I uh, did f- check the uh, first episode of Miss Marvel, and it looks to be a fantastic new sh- uh, uh, Disney Plus show from the Marvel Universe. A great new character and actress in the role, and yeah, definitely check it out. It has a nice teenage vibe to it, and the, the more diversity in Marvel, the better. And uh, with that, that concludes this episode. Uh, join me again next week as, well, this is the conclusion of Season 5 as I run out of uh, shows that are no longer in the bank. So I'll be returning to a series in the classics and so forth. But uh, join me again next week for that. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself. It's a comic book.